welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Azband, our daf of the day, Masachet Bavakama, daf Kuf Dalid, page 104. Um, from the top of the daf, we have a discussion that springs off the Mishnah, which was talking about, you know, the robber who um, who swears falsely that he has not taken or has paid back whatever the item that he has stolen. And now he has to pay back not only the item, but also Chomesh, also a fifth on top of that as a fine. And the Mishnah there spoke about what happens with an agent. And he, he has to, you know, at some point, if the, the person who, the robber, wants to make amends, he has to go do it in person. And he can't do it, you know, via an agent unless it's a court agent. So that's what where we're up to. This is the discussion. Lo yitain, lo, lo yitain, lo livno, lo lishlucho. The robber cannot return that stolen item to pay back to the victim's son, meaning, again, assuming that the victim is still alive. It's not about heirs. Um, to the victim's son or to the the um, victim's agent. Itamar. So the Gemara says, What if we're talking about an agent who is appointed in the presence of witnesses that he's going to go be a debt collector? Rav Amar Rabba Amar Lo so Rav Chista says that is good enough. That counts. That makes a legally recognized agent, and it's enough to then, if the if the thief pays him, that legally recognized agent, then that's enough to count as his payment, and he's not held uh, he's not held accountable any longer. Let's say I don't know something happens to the agent, something happens to the payback, and the thief would still be on the hook for it or not. If Christa says he's no longer on the hook for it. But Rabbi says, no, that's not an agent because we've just said you can't have an agent. So he's responsible no matter what until the until the um, victim, the original owner of the item, gets it back in his possession. And only then, if something were to happen to it, is the is the robber off the hook. The Gemara is going to explain. Rav Christa marhave shaliach, Rav Chista says that the guy is an agent because um, the the robber went ahead and took the trouble to appoint him. I'm sorry, the the victim, right? The person whose item had been stolen took the trouble to go ahead and appoint him as his agent in the presence of witnesses. The lekul bershute, meaning it, it's as if the the agent comes under the domain, the the umbrella of the of the robbery victim. To say he's here, he's he can be me, right? He's part of my household, so to speak. Um, and the idea then is, um, no, I'm sorry, I skipped a few words that were essential. Right now, let's switch to Rabbi's opinion, which is that it doesn't count. He's not an official agent because why? Because what that means is it's as if he's saying this guy is a trustworthy person. So if you're going to if you want to say that you could rely on him, so then rely on him to give me the, to give the money to give the payment. Um, likewise, you want to send the debt, you know, in amongst his things. So send it amongst his things, right? That's the whole idea of um, of establishing the relationship, let's say, between the robber and the person he has robbed, 
or in this case, anybody who's paying back and has sweared falsely in that kind of way, right? So then, again, what he's saying basically is you can rely on that guy as an agent, but it's not enough to really, it's just, it's, it's talk, right? It's, I can, you know, then you ask me like, is this a good, I don't know what, a good recommendation for somebody to do some kind of business service? And I can give you a good recommendation, let's say, if I knew anybody, right? But that's not enough to say that you now have a formal business relationship with that person or that I did for that matter, right? It's just a recommendation. It's not considered an actual establishment of a, of a shaliach, of, a, of an agent. Um, the Gemara goes on. It's not a shoel et a parav, so we have a Mishnah here from Bav Metziah, which we'll get to eventually, right? Please God, where which is going to um, be a difficulty for the opinion of Rav Chista that in fact that kind of appointing of a shaliach counts, namely when you have people who agree that there's going to be a, a borrowing and lending going on. The, the somebody's going to borrow a cow, and the owner sends the cow over to the borrower in the hands of, meaning in the possession of, obviously it's a cow, not literally in the hand of, his son, his servant, his agent, or the agent said, uh, I'm sorry, or the borrower sends his son or his um, servant or his shaliach to come collect it, and then along the way the cow dies. Right, meaning before it's actually in the possession of the person who's borrowing, and it's already left the possession of the person who's lending. Now, what happens? The cow dies. The borrower is exempt from paying the cow back. I mean, paying the owner back for the cow, for the loss of the cow, because it never got to him. So that whole idea that your shaliach is as if the transaction has already taken place falls by the wayside with this claim. You know, because the cow, you would think he would have to pay for it, and the answer is he does not. Um, so then the question is what happens when you have the agent of the person who's actually trying to pay back if there's no witnesses then how do we know to begin with that there was ever an agency um, involved but if you say that he was appointed as, as in front of witnesses and then you want to say that the borrower is going to be exempt borrower, meaning the person trying to pay back is not liable for the item once it's already on the way to get to reach the original owner. Well, that's a problem for Rav Chista because Rav Chista's point is that the transfer of, of property should work with that agent. And if that's the case, then that cow, the cow that died, she should, he should, it should have can be, been to be considered that it reached the hands of the borrower, but it does not. Um, so the government resolves this, right? It says we have a contradiction, but let's fix it. And the way it fixes it is to say that if Christa was talking about a different Mishnah, he's not talking about that same case, so it's okay. Specifically, when you've got a hired hand or like a regular person who comes to do his work, and that's the case in the Mishnah of Metziah. But and this Mishnah is not talking about, uh, I'm sorry, and in that case, you don't really have witnesses being appointed an agent. You're talking about his regular workers, his foremen, his regular day laborers, whatever it is. And in this case, meaning in our case, you have a, you have a, a direct appointment of witnesses that change the, the status of, 
of the whole story because those witnesses those witnesses kind of attest to the fact that this guy is now going to be part of the story instead of just some random bystander or even part of the the regular working team that it doesn't go as far as how much the person appointing um appointing witnesses to attest to the to the agency um like they they take it a step further in in officialness in making the whole thing uh, a a real dynamic. So that's why Rav Chista or the the Gemara says that's why Rav Chista can still be upheld. Of course, the Gemara goes on. There's going to be more discussion about the difficulties posed, you know, to to try to bring down Rav Chista. But I'm gonna hand it over to you, Yordina, for Amabet. Um, you know, I think this whole concept of the shaliach when trying to make payments is very interesting. Like, you know, cause you, you, you're using a shaliach, but like who becomes responsible when things don't go exactly as they're supposed to go? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that we've seen enough cases of shlichut, right? Where you, where the appointment of an agent is part and parcel of the transaction, let's say, or part and parcel of you've got people at a distance and they're sending things and, and so on. In this case, it really does seem like this is a dynamic between in the one case, right, the robber and the person who's robbed, to start involving shlichim to begin with is already, I don't know, it feels like, well, we must explore all the parameters, so now we'll talk about what would happen with an agent. And as opposed to it being kind of a given within the particular kind of dynamic. Uh, Okay, I hear that. And I think what's difficult about, I think what's complicated about this passage of Gemara is, is that we, you know, wouldn't you like a masachat on shlichut? It's like the concept of shlichut yes. comes up almost in every masachat, right? Basically since, I would say basically since Nashim, right? It keeps coming up, but there isn't like a uniform halachic discussion about shlichut in all its different areas. Right, because because that's exactly what the government is doing, right? Like, oh, let's make sure that we can consider this new element of halakha in light of the question exactly, of shlichut. Exactly. So it's kind of, the Gemara is kind of doing it for us. But it's interesting. Right. Like, you almost feel like there should be a masachat shlichut. Okay. I'm going to move on from there since I want to write my new own Mishnah. And uh, there, I'm going to move on to a piece on Amud Bet here, which talked about, the Mishnah said, Natan lo Karen. If the robber pays the victim the principal, Right. And we know that the robber owes the principal and a ch- the homesh, the fifth. But let's say he didn't pay the fifth. The Mishnah says you don't actually have to, uh, you know, you don't have to go after him to make sure that the fifth gets paid. What the Gemara wants to figure out now here is that what is this whole thing about the homesh? Right. Is it like a, a debt on the person who committed the crime? Um, and so his victim, therefore, can basically say, hey, you owe me this extra, you know, fifth, or is it a mitzvah like that he has to pay the victim this extra fifth because it's sort of in a way it gives like atonement, you know, it, it's some type of restitution for his sin, but it's more about him as opposed to what he actually owes the victim. So again, there's kind of two possibilities. Either we say the fifth is actually something the robber owes the victim by saying like you stole so not only do you owe the object or the value of what you stole, but you owe a fifth more. Or do we just say that, no, the robber owes the fifth because it's a way of giving penance in some way. So you owe extra money, but it's not something that's actually owed to the victim. So the Gemara starts off by saying, right? So we see from the 
Mishnah here that the one-fifth, right, the Chumash that's charged is a monetary obligation, right, from the robber to his victim. And therefore, if he dies, his heirs actually have to pay it, okay? So that, in other words, since the Mishnah basically says that uh, what the Mishnah seems to be saying is, is that, you know, this homage is something that the robber owes the victim. And if the robber's heirs, you know, want to, they can come after him. They would have to get it, uh, you know, it, it would have to come from the robber's estate, basically. And if it were really just a, a some type of atonement, right, then you wouldn't, the heirs wouldn't be able to get it paid from the estate because once the guy's dead, he's dead. So like, who's, who's getting atonement or anything? So the Gemara then, you know, uh, wants to say, we can learn this also from another piece of our Mishnah, Utsnan Nami. We learned also in our Mishnah, right? So we're talking about if you swear falsely and confess. So the robber pays the victim the principal, but he didn't pay the Chomash. And then he sued, you know, and then when he's sued for the payment, he swears falsely about the fifth, right? He claims that he pay, that he paid it. And later he says, no, I, I didn't actually pay it. What does he have to do? He has to add a fifth for a fifth, right? Because in other words, he, he, he has to add a fifth. He, you know, he adds this fifth for the fifth. So again, what this shows us is that the fifth is like a monetary obligation from the robber to the victim. So now the Gemara is going to bring a brisa which supports this. Betanya nami hachi, okay? Uh, we, we learned in a brisa hagozel uh, Somebody robs, you know, from his another person and swears falsely, saying he didn't rob. Later he confesses, right? Umate, and then he dies before he had an opportunity to pay him back. The heirs have to pay the principal in the fifth, but they don't need to bring the asham. They don't need to bring the korban because the asham is there for atonement. Now that the robber's dead, he obviously can't make atonement, okay? But the monetary piece, including the chomesh, is there as payment to the victim, and so it actually has to be paid. Now the Gemara wants to say, okay, this doesn't totally fit right, where they're going to have a contradiction, um, so are we saying that what, um, that the heirs actually have to pay the one-fifth of their father? Uraminhu, okay? We have another Bryson that says differently. Okay, Adayan Ani Omer, right? I still can say as follows. When the son does not pay the one-fifth this homesh of his father's robbery, Bizman below It's when neither he nor his father swore swore falsely in denial of the robbery. So, in other words, what we're trying to figure out is the following: Let's say a son inherits a, a, something stolen from his father. His father stole something; the son inherits it. Okay. In one scenario, neither the fun, the father nor the son swears you know, denying that there was an actual theft, okay? The father didn't swear that he stole it. The son doesn't swear that it's in his possession. The father swears falsely, but the son didn't. The son swears falsely, but the father didn't. Or both the father and the son swear falsely, okay? These are sort of the different scenarios here that we could have, all right? So when we have, so the only time when the son is not going to pay the one-fifth for his father's robbery is when neither he nor his father swore false, falsely denying the robbery. 
who below Aviv, but let's say he swears falsely and his father didn't, Aviv who, or the father swore falsely and he did not, who um, Aviv, or let's say both he and the father swore falsely, Minayan, where do we know that the son would not pay the fifth for the father's theft? Tamud Lamar, Asher Gazal, the Asher Asha. So the Torah says the following, which is um, the Pusik says, right? It says that he would, should return the the robbed item that he robbed, and the and the and the gain, right? Asher Ashak, like the fraudulent gain that he that he got. So this is the Pasuk in Vayikra chapter five, verse twenty-three. Asha. Since he the son didn't rob and also didn't defraud, right? He doesn't have to pay the Chomesh. So we see from this Brisa that an heir doesn't have to pay the Chomesh. Okay? So this is very different than what we said before. So the Gemara now tries to resolve this contradiction. Amar Rav Nachman. Rav Nachman says, Lo Kasha, Khan Shehoda, our Mishnah in the first Brisa we quoted, is a case where the robber confessed while he was alive. Okay? And so since he became liable to pay the Chomesh, his heirs have to pay the Chomesh. In other words, everyone knew that Chomesh needed to be paid. In the second verse, we're talking about a case where he didn't confess. So he, so it's sort of like never, no one ever became aware that he actually, you know, needed to pay this homage, and therefore the heirs are not actually required to pay him. Now, from here, the Gemara is going to go on to try to explain that why they don't like Rav Nachman's interpretation of the Brisa, and they're going to try to challenge it. But you know, we've talked about this homage. We haven't talked about it really in full. But it's interesting to see how the Gemara treats it, right? That it seems to be a payment that's owed to the victim. It's not an issue of atonement. And it's something that you have to pay extra because of the crime that you committed. And I think that's like an important thing to understand what this, you know, principle of, of, of Homesh is. Yeah, I think that when we first encounter it, we're like, Wait, what? Why is there a fine under these circumstances? And also, why specifically Chomesh? And some of the answer is because that's the biblical verse. But it's treated as such a, uh, like, I don't know. It seems like it's treated as a given that people knew about. And to the extent that they might come and, you know, swear that they did pay this, that they didn't pay that. I don't know. I find it an interesting, like, kind of addendum to the question of paying back what you've stolen. Right, but I think you're making an important point. We pay the homage because the Torah tells us to. And so the Gemara could have just said like, oh, it's kind of like a hook, you know, like it's just like, that's just what you have to do. But the Gemara is trying to go a little deeper and try to figure out like, what's the framing of it? Because once you understand that, then you apply it to sort of all these cases of inheritance and things like that. Right, exactly. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP and our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.